Hello. It is a Friday in April. It's actually, I think, one of the last Fridays in April, so I'm enjoying it on my patio. You're going to hear the lovely sounds of the outdoors in this wonderful intro. Welcome to Threadings. This is the newsletter and the podcast where we discuss black feminism, love studies, and other things keeping and collecting me. And this week, and also the past couple weeks, the phrase that has been keeping and collecting me is the following my most favorite form of self-love is archival the person that said that to me absolutely changed my life then and there on the spot literally became an entirely different bitch that person's name is courtney fudge and they are a lovely person through and through inside and out friend of mine wonderful chef mixologist entrepreneur someone who continually puts a black woman on to their bag they're one of my favorite people to be around she's one of my like she she's such a delight and i have decided to bless your ears your mind your company this week with a conversation between me and her where we discuss archival as this incredibly necessary incredibly lovely form of self-love and self-actualization we talk about the reasons that archival means so much to us we talk about how archival shows up in our lives what we wish to remember we tell each other stories it's really lovely I had such a blast recording this podcast episode with her, and if you don't already know, if you're not hip, get your life. Courtney has a podcast called With Love and Butter. It has just wrapped filming for season two, so we are about to be in there like swimwear in the just juicy, delicate details of Courtney's love life would heavily recommend watching it on youtube okay my girl it's very pretty the target dresses are coming in clutch they're absolutely gorgeous without further ado here is me and courtney fudge courtney it is so good to see you hi my love Oh, this warms my heart so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. No one can see me, but I'm beaming. I feel like you can hear the smile through my voice. I'm here with tea. I, uh, of course, am drinking green tea because apparently I'm a grown bitch now who no longer is interested in staining my teeth. So uh, <laughs> it's a lemongrass Japanese vanilla blend. I'm living my best life. How are you? I'm doing so well. You know, I am actually without tea today. I was feeling a little jittery this morning. So it's just water for me as I try to bring myself back down into the body. It makes so much sense. Beautiful. Um, (laughs) I have to credit you with changing my life by just one turn of phrase, which you do often. Like, I mean, I don't know if I'm certain that the people that listen to my podcast and the people that listen to yours is more of a circle than a Venn diagram. Um, mm-hmm. I regularly interact with the best parts of the internet and I feel like you do too from your comment section but if you don't already know Courtney Futch chef extraordinaire brilliantly beautiful black woman host of With Love and Butter podcast I, like I really cannot recommend it more it's so good it's so good Thank you. Um, you regularly change my life with your words and one of the things that you said uh, actually not on a podcast on just a call between us was one of my most favorite forms of self-love is archival. I have literally dedicated an entire series <laughs> on my podcast to just that phrase because there's so much for me there. But will you tell me a little bit more about what you mean when you say that? Yeah, um, so I think that something that I really struggled with was always feeling like my experience was a very lonely one mm-hmm. um, in that 
I'm one and only child of divorced parents, right? And so I have moved through a lot of the world, even in like my school spaces, um, as either the person that everybody went to in order to kind of get their problem solved, um, or the student who was, you know, kind of alone in a, in more of like an adultified um, sort of interaction with most of the adults in my life. Mm. So with my parents, I felt like I was having like these very kind of adult conversations with them because the requirement was one such that I, I needed to be able to talk to them kind of at that level just for us to be able to be in like stasis. Um, and then that seeped over into my other relationships in my life. And I felt like what ended up happening, and we will end up getting into this some more, um, is that I ended up forgetting a lot of my childhood And I think in part because I felt forgotten um, in my childhood as well. And so like there are like very minimal photos. Any photos that I have actually in my childhood are ones that like other family members took of me. Mm. Like they're other people's parents and I am in those photos, but they are not the ones that like my parents took. They're not the ones that, you know, like the people closest to me. Like I I think that there was just not really... um, there was not room for archival when the goal was survival. And, Ooh, right? and that's, nice. I think that's really what it is. And so on the flip side of having survived, I looked back and said, I don't have any memories of a young Courtney. I've got maybe 10 to 12 photos that kind of show me like going, going through the world, doing things. And if it wasn't an activity, I just don't know who I was. Like I, I asked my parents to describe a young me and, and, you know, and, and they described the things that made it easier for them yep. to exist in space with a child. <laughs> right. Um, things about my, um, you know, the things that made me a great student or the things that made me, um, a emotionally regulated child. Right. But not really ever anything about like, you were so much fun or you had, you know, X, Y, Z personality. I feel like nobody can recall to me who I was during those years, except for the time that I was in service to the needs that they had or to the Mm. ease that they required. Um, and so my love language back to myself now has had to become one in which I remember me because I felt like when the opportunity had been given, even when I made the request to people, They just kind of opted out. Wow. Wow. I think this is going to be a tearful episode, my love. It might be. It might be unearthing. You, I didn't realize how much of, how, how much of my obsession with archival is related to not really being kept well in childhood. But yeah, you're right. Like I had a really similar childhood experience. I think the the main difference between you and me is that I have a sister. I have an older sister Mm. and I don't think that I would remember half of what I do about my childhood if she had not been there to confirm that uh, things did happen that way. You know, I just watched the the Hunger Games series because it went viral on Twitter. I'm pretty sure they marketed this to us. Like, everybody go in. Yeah. But I um, (laughs) marathoned them with a friend. Watching it now as a grown therapist, it's really, really interesting to see how they navigate trauma and PTSD in regards to war because those are movies about war. Um, and there's a point in time, spoilers for the Hunger Games, but like, please get your life. Um, right. Where Peter is at the easier, right? <laughs> Peter is being rehabilitated into his, his like familial group after being kidnapped by the enemy and enduring mm-hmm. torture. Um, and he's going through his memories based on what they told him happened, what actually happened in a game that they play called real or not real. Um, and that literally brought tears to my eyes because I remember playing this game with my sister growing up. We grew up in a very tumultuous, abusive environment. There was a lot of change happening around us. Um, There were a lot of adults that 
were sometimes trustworthy and sometimes weren't. Um, and the amount of making sense that your brain does after the fact can sometimes be faulty. Um, so I feel like I call her like every other week or so and be like, did that actually happen? And she's like, bitch, yes, that actually happened. Like, mm. it was it was a life where things turned over again and again and again. Um, where the, the big picture stays the same. Because when you grow up in the mountains, that a lot changes. The mountains are very stagnant creatures. Slow to like and slow to love. Like, it's just not a whole mm. lot going on. And then my micro space was uh, constantly volatile. Especially with uh, my parents immigrating to the United States... Um, learning about blackness as American and then also like international blackness coming into those identities in homogeneously white spaces, not even mostly white as in I was the only black person in my school other than my sister white. Um, mm. It was a place where people valued me because of how much I could output because of my like her, the, the amount of work that I could process even as a small child was like alarming to people. Mm -hmm. Um, the amount that you have to get done is like everyone always complimented me on my excellence but it's like I have to survive like this is what I have to do to make it out of here so mm -hmm. like it I, I mean I appreciate how useful you all find me it's just that I wish that I did not have to be this way yeah. um and I would not honestly about childhood childhood I don't remember a lot but I did like writing so I appreciate the fact mm -hmm. that little me felt wildly enough about her life and liked her life enough to be able to to write some of it down um, and I didn't start writing writing until I was it was I was 13 turning 14 and I remember the day very clearly where I was sitting in like a Colorado wood essentially I was an outside child I spent a lot of time outside don't nobody talk to a black girl that is in trees by the way like it was a very easy <laughs> place for me to just hide oh yeah that's he's much mm -hmm. weird she's reading up a tree somewhere um I remember distinctly being among the trees and being like, I should find a notebook. Like, I should write this down, what I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that I had the words for it then, but what I felt was an intense connection to the land around me that saw a lot and remained unchanged. And I was like, I too want to see a lot and remain unchanged because right now I belong to everybody else but me. And everybody else is not very good at keeping me. It was the first time that I ever considered myself someone or something worth keeping worth archiving and I did not realize how deep it was for me like the um getting to 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 journaling and to picture taking and to decidedly remembering my day my week my month my life until you put mm -hmm. it in context of well, yeah I did this because my parents weren't very good at keeping me they needed me to be a miniature adult as fast as possible same mm -hmm. same mm -hmm. there was a lot of precious mm -hmm. time a lot of temporariness um, mm -hmm. that is gone that I don't ever yeah. get back. Yeah. And you know what I think is also really interesting is uh, you, you talked about survival, right? But I think in addition to that, there is this piece about praise. Like children are very quick with self-conditioning. Mm. And so the thing that I think I, I learned very early is that I would continue to feed the things that people praised in me the most, Real. right? And so it was, it was very funny actually, because like, I, I also did a lot of public speaking as a kid and like, you know what I mean? Young spelling bee champ Same. and all of this. No, so what grade you in the spelling bee? Um, up through seventh. Every year. Up until through seventh. Seven. Up through Every seven. year until seventh grade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah and then we finally stopped participating in the in the eighth grade and i was like mm, what a bummer i was really looking forward to beating your ass you know what i mean um but i felt like there were while it was so funny like while there were so many spaces i think dedicated to um the act of performance for me like public speech and all of these things like i i decidedly like did not dance. I, I sing also a little bit but um i decidedly like did not dance when i was like in my younger school performance years but i would always end up like in oration it was always like the martin luther king speech it was always like you know ego tripping by nikki giovanni there was always a thing and because i'd gotten praise for that so much but was also and this is going to be like this is the most interesting thing i felt like i did not like my voice for years at some point a teacher miss jackson who i still love i'm still in close community with um had said to me once i was saying something i was far 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 down the hall i went to an all-black private school from pre-k through eighth grade and i feel like that's important context and you can do that in a place like atlanta right so imhotep academy um really just what is it called foundation imhotep academy imhotep Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I know why I know why you're laughing. Um, so so um, so yeah, right. And we should definitely talk about that offline. But um but yeah, and so I'm I'm in this space. The space is is an arbiter of black excellence. And I have found myself at the I hate to say it like this, but this is you know what I mean. I'm I'm testing at the most excellent. Yeah. I am um, forward-facing in the most excellent sort of way. I am emotionally developed in a way that a lot of the other students weren't, mm -hmm. while also having skipped a grade and also being the youngest student in the in the school. Gang. And I am responsible for so many people's emotions. Um, and there are so many things that are just like ongoing and they're unfurling. But the thing that I thought was so interesting is that my voice was the most like picked apart thing in all of that. Right. So my voice is also the most needed. I'm the only student who can go out here and, and do what it is you're asking me to do, which is helping you raise money, which is helping you. You know what I mean? As a school survive, it's 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 helping you propel. It's helping raise your status. Mm -hmm. And then in quieter spaces, there was this and a very deep voice as as a kid. Right. Like my voice now, I feel like I found like a, a happier middle. But when my voice is actually in a true resting, I also <clears> have a very deep voice when I decide not to think about it. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so like I, when I, when I dropped down into that voice and it was something I, I did not really even know to, or think to regulate teachers would be like, I can hear you from down the hall. Like you should never, ever whisper because we can still hear you at full volume. And I was like, I'm, I'm really just struggling to understand that, but my voice was deeper than the boys. Right. And mm. so I'm like, and I've just felt a lot of shame around that. Like, I think if somebody maybe had encouraged it or just like called it something slightly more neutral, I don't think that I would have um, gone to such lengths to hide it. And then I started hiding it from myself. And I didn't want to hear me talk anymore. Mm. And so I also didn't want to hear me written anywhere. Mm. I used to write, like I'd been writing for years. My dad, uh, my dad is also a writer um, and refuses to publish any of his work, which I think is insane. Um, and... You know, like we've we've always just been like these very creative sort of people. Like I love ink. I will, you know what I mean. The click yep. of a pen is like my favorite thing to hear. Yep. It's like a little Wayne lighter flick. I love it so much, and um, I stopped. I just I lost the desire to hear my own voice for like a very long time. Mm -hmm. So it's so interesting now that you know on the on the flip side of like all of this work that I've done, 
to hear like it doesn't bother me to hear myself anymore and in fact i could listen to myself speak for hours me too in post right like even like not not here like in this space but like in the aftermath i will go back and rewatch all of my things um and it's been such an interesting thing for the thing that i hid for so many years to now be the thing that people compliment me on the most mm. in social spaces it's been insane and so i feel like when i just go back and start telling the stories that I hid from myself for the better part of a decade and a half, I feel like I'm getting caught up. And mm -hmm. I feel like, um, I feel like I owe me this as like back pay. Oh, wow. Wow. I have so much to say about that. I mean, I think I, I really should not continue to be shocked at how similar um, so many of our expository circumstances were my dad also a writer and my dad also staunchly refusing to publish the things that he writes which is nuts because he really could write the next tuesday with more he's been a caregiver all his life has very interesting mm -hmm. things to say about life and death but you can lead a horse to water but niggas going nigga um <laughs> and they will and they will <laughs> i never considered how special i was um or how useful other people found me I just enjoyed being helpful. I enjoyed being useful. What you said about how kids lock on to praise very quickly. I also experienced where um, I was given a microphone at like 14. Um, someone at church had noticed that I had a, a great way with words and was always writing poetry and was like, you should share some of this poetry. It started in just like the youth group in front of my peers, which is honestly the hardest place to perform for um, mm -hmm. your peers, uh, especially... I mean, I was in very white spaces and white children are very, very, very competitive. Um, not just with each other because they're, they're ready to cannibalize each other. But you, most definitely, the, the one black kid, oh my gosh, I was consistently the bar that everybody else wanted to clear. It was a really lonely, um, difficult experience attempting to make friends with people that wanted to best me all the time at school and at church. Mm -hmm. So it was two things. Um, I was either not bullied for excellence it wasn't like outright traditional like kick me on the back of your back bullying it was um once in my honors english class it was my first year of high school we took a pretest you know and the, the pretest was what's the meaning of life and you had to write an essay in 45 minutes so it's designed to be hard it's designed so that you're you know panicked and that you're not going to pass so our teacher could really really see where you're at this teacher mm -hmm. called Miss B, also someone that I'm still in community with, love her down. Um, she'd been teaching me since seventh grade and then had like moved to the same high school that her seventh, eighth grade class moved to. So it was just like lovely oh, that I got to have okay. one more year with her. She's really brilliant, like brilliant English teacher um, and still the foundations of writing. Like I, I think back to her, her lessons. I uh, Most of the class got a 60 and I got a 70, I think like a 72, 73, 78, something in the 70s. Mm -hmm. Um... And she told us the distribution of the scores. Like, okay, so the lowest score was a 50. The highest score was a 76 or whatever. Um, and most everybody got a 60. And, of course, we, like, suburban, college-bound AP kids are like, a oh, 60. You know? Like, it's, like, mm -hmm. it's scandalizing. Devastating. Yes. Yeah. She handed them back, all faced down. Everyone's clamoring about, okay, like, who's got the 76? Who got the 76? I, of course, got mm -hmm. the 76. I saw that and said, great. Flip my paper back over and was just waiting for the next thing. Um, I will never forget that a girl who we will call June looked over my shoulder, snatched my, uh, test out of my hand, saw it, like looked at it just to make sure she saw it right. And then said, 
Ismatu got the 76 to the whole class. And then the rest of the day was, congratulations, can I see your paper? Congratulations, what did you do? And it was so deeply uncomfortable for me, especially because this was our first week at high school and I was just trying to make friends. And now there were no real friends. There were gonna be people that were friendly towards me, but no real mm -hmm. friends. It was tragic. Um, by the end of the day, I was in tears, just trying to hide it. And I went up to my teacher and I said, can you please grade me like you grade everybody else? Um, oh, and Miss B said, Ismato, I do grade you like I grade everybody else. And I said, well, then will you please grade me harder? Um, and I cried and she gave me a hug. Uh, and it was a very important uh, lesson in excellence, which is that nobody wants you to be more than useful. The moment that you're not, like, you be as useful as you can be. Be as excellent as you need to be to be useful to the people around you. And then the moment that you do more than that, you will get enemies. It will be unfortunate for you. And you have to be prepared for that. And at the same time, I had been given a mic in my church because they had noticed. A couple people in charge had noticed that I was good at writing. So maybe I was good at speaking. So I started sharing poetry. Turned into spoken word. And, you know, spoken word was a huge thing at this point in time. Mm -hmm. Um... And so that snowballed very quickly from performing in front of my peers to performing for like the, the big bad church, which had like mm, maybe one, two thousand members roll through in a weekend. So it was like a mid-sized church. And then that kept going over the course of like 14, 15, 16 by 17. I was performing at uh, like Central Phoenix Worship Nights, partnered with Bethel, like hundreds, if not thousands of people in attendance. And I was that bitch that did not have to be on the schedule beforehand. I could walk up to the person like in charge of stage and be like, I have something I'd like to say. And they would hand me the mic at any time in the night. Wow. Yeah. So it was a lot of eyes on me. Um, and all of that came at a point in time where I was too young to understand what visibility meant and what being in the public eye meant um, and how much it was shaping me. I didn't. Mm -hmm know that it would matter <laughs> I didn't I didn't like I could not have conceptualized how it would affect me and so much was happening at once um like you know juggling this with my personal poverty a full-time job okay trying to survive it full-time job um mm -hmm. desperately trying to make sure that I did not die along the way because there are a lot of things that were, were stressors black people in my family were dropping from stress and poverty left and right death is death was everywhere um mm -hmm. I personally was struggling with um suicidality um with thought and action uh, of suicidality and i was talking about those things in my poetry basically saying into the mic no rumbling like i am dying i'm dying right in front of you all and it would be met with applause and a better mic and a bigger stage very few we... maternal resources <laughs> yes yeah so it made me learn that the lesson there was that like my blood is very precious. There's something ritualistic about all of this. White folks with money really love to see a black girl bleed. And they're not necessarily going to do anything to stop you. What they will do is make sure that as many people can bathe in that ritual as much as possible. We talk about my relationship with God and death and dying. I was talking very explicitly, openly about self-harm. And it was all of these like white adults with white picket fences and children coming up to me afterwards saying how impactful I was and how beautiful they found it. And I was dying in front of everyone. 
people were then surprised that I had like made attempts on my own life. I was like, are you kidding? I've been, I've literally been telling you what it was, but it mm. always came with more applause. And then not even just applause, right? Money, scholarships started coming because mm-hmm. I started writing essays like that. Full rides to college, multiple offers for full rides came because I started writing in college. Like, and then I got to college, studied Ebola, did ethnographic studies. I am dying, changed to we are dying, money, research, better mics, bigger stages. It really was not until, like, I mean, I realized sometime in high school that I was being preyed upon just a little bit, but it was like, you were doing what I really did what I had to do to survive. I had to make it out of there. The suburbs of Arizona were not for me. I grew up in Colorado, I'm a mountain girl. Arizona, something different. Um, those mm. those bitches rep for the Confederacy, and they weren't even a state at that time. Like they are, uh huh. They're very different out there. I'm not. I needed to go. So yeah. as much as I knew that, like a little a bit of this was exploitative, I was like, I also need to get out of here. Mm-hmm. By the time I got to college and realized how much I had pimped out like my mind and my words for the academy, how much the academy did not love me, how much. How, how crazy I thought it was that they would give me ten, fifteen thousand dollars to do research and realizing that was chump change to them, I was like, oh, this is still the plantation. It's all mm. still ritual. Y'all still love to watch a black girl bleed. Like nothing has changed. I don't own any of this. People were pushing me towards publication and I was like, for what? So that nothing can change? So that I get a bigger mic and bigger stages and I write a book and then nothing changes, right? Okay, I feel like you've just you've said so many really I'm you can y'all cannot see my face right now, but I think my mouth was open for like a minute and 30 seconds. Um the through line here is that the institution of platforming is exploitative. Yes. It's exploitative as hell. Um and it's so interesting to see that happen in in one in community with your people, right? Because it really does kind of start from the family giving permission and consent to your being platformed in that way. Yeah, my family and was then, very absent from the, like, my mom was very much like, oh, my little black girl's being excellent? Go ahead. And then was right. out of it. She didn't even see, she didn't read most of my writing. She didn't, she wasn't at most of those things. Like the vast mm-hmm. majority, I'm going to say like 90% of the things that I talked at, she was not at. Mm. There wasn't really parental supervision. And my sister was up there too, singing. Oh my God. My sister's an opera singer. She sings and she plays like a couple different instruments. She plays the piano, the violin, the viola, the guitar. She can do a lot. So she was up there with music and I was up there with a mic. And we were doing that. So she was like, y'all got it? Y'all got each other? Great. Children. We were children. Mm. It was all this archival, archival work that I always assumed had to belong to somebody else. And it was me trying to practice, and it was me trying to practice forms of self-love that were just like the love I was experiencing, which was based in ownership and control and not community. I did not know how to be in community with myself. Mm. The archival that I was doing, even the notebooks that I were keeping, was so that I, so that I could hold on to myself and not share some secret places that were still mine. So that I could still mm-hmm. write for me. So that I could still own my mind. And even that was the wrong direction. It was just the only thing I knew how to emulate. Ownership. It wasn't mm-hmm. until like I put all of that down. Years later. It wasn't until like my senior year of college. In which I was facing life and death very personally. Um, had like direct nuclear family loved ones in the hospital at the time. With early COVID. We didn't know what it was at that time. 
that I was like, I need to learn to like myself and not just own myself or earn myself. I don't know that I like myself. I love myself. I enjoy my time and my company, but so does everybody. You'd be surprised in the ways that that's also not true. <laughs> You'd be surprised. That's you really would. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think like, I think what you're, the language that I've used to describe that feeling is one of belonging to, mm-hmm. to the self. Um, and I felt like I had always belonged to a thing. There was always a descriptor. There was always a superlative, I think, in front of Courtney. Courtney mm. V this. Yeah. Or, you know, like scholar Courtney. This is our president Courtney. This is the entrepreneur Courtney. This is Thundercakes Courtney. This is whatever Courtney. Chef Courtney. Um, and even the difference between being Courtney and being Courtney Fudge. Oh, Right, like the be- the belong the belonging to the last name of me is really a very interesting and, and deeply tethered thing, um, because I just want to kind of be experienced as the Courtney with the two E's. I I'm I'm very comfortable with that, and there has always been a need to like to to bring that full circle and like back to the other half of me, which I think for some folks gives me furthered legitimacy and detachment from like my human. And I'm like I'm just I'm just a girl. Now detachment I think from my t- human. Hold on a second. Will you say more about that? Yeah. Um, So I think that, mm, man. So, okay. I I will give you some context about why I said this thing about platforms being exploitative. When I realized that there was a huge gap, right? Like there was an, one, there was an insight gap. There was an information gap. There were, there was just huge, gigantic gaps. And I felt like what I knew about the universe and then the ways that the universe knew me. Mm. Um, and when I was at college and I won't say which institution, but it's very easy to find it's orange. Um, when I was in college, um, I had started my bakery, Thunder Cakes. This will make sense in just a moment. But I started this bakery my freshman year, and I started it because I was 16 when I got to school. And in the state of New York, I was not legally allowed to work anywhere except for um, on campus because I was just so young. So I'd been baking for years. My mom's a great baker. Um, and I had had all these recipes and I did culinary team in high school and had always had this desire to get back to the kitchen. And the parents were like, Mm-mm. and really by parents, I do mean my mom. Um, but you know, there was, I think cooking by the way, had always been seen as a very informal sort of love to have like because it's so deeply gendered right it was like of course you of course you love this right like of course you're you're going to excel at this thing and so the fact that you've been able to monetize it is cute and that's it and there's no value in it as a as a business or as a goal um or any of those things and so i think even for my mom who is such a phenomenal um you know what i mean i call her a culinary engineer right like she's a phenomenal culinary engineer there has not ever been a level of seriousness applied to it i think one because we as a black community see side hustles as um as another means of survival Kitchen. right yeah we see, exactly oh, you know. it's like oh what a quirk it's Ooh. like mm. and we've been delegitimizing entrepreneurship by giving it the side hustle language for years and that's really piece number one but that was what was happening in my in my world while I was at school. And so it wasn't until I got the attention of the university by baking in my dorm room after I'd made my first couple thousand dollars um, where I got a cease and desist. And I, I was like, oh, is this what we're doing? Yeah, it, was, oh. it, it wasn't like a fully formal one, but it was, it was kind of funny because um, I got it from the uh, from the uh, like housing 
department. I can't remember the name of them now, but um, I got it from them and I was like, oh shoot, like, okay. And that was the thing because one thing about it, I'm a little propelled by spite. I took that and I said, how are we one of the number one undergrad entrepreneurship programs in the nation at that time? I don't know what the ranking is now. And y'all won't let this little black girl run her, run her bakery from the very dorm room in which entrepreneurship is supposed to thrive. I'm confused. And so I started taking that up the ranks. And as I did so, I kept meeting people along the way who were like, oh, well, we can get you this grant here. And then I started doing business plan competitions and then I started pitching. And then I was going to other places to talk about the entrepreneurship program. I I don't think I've ever told anybody this story before. When I formally applied to belong to the business school in my undergrad, I got denied. I'm taking my glasses off for this one so that you know what I mean? So we can really register the fuckery that's existing in my eyes. How funny is this? I'd, I had won over $60,000 in business plan competitions at the time that I decided to transition my major. And there was no space for me formally because of my GPA. Well, my GPA is low, baby, because I'm running a business that's producing $100,000 in a year. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? And so... There was, I was being pimped, right? Like, like, let's not, let's not extrapolate the thing from, from what it is. I'm being pimped. My face is on banners when you drive up to the school. Mm, I know that life. My life is being used. My voice is being used. My very inspirational story is being put in marketing materials for upcoming students. You've eliminated a lot of the fun. I'm realizing a lot of this in post, right? But You've eliminated a lot of the funding for um, for programs that bring black students to your school. And then you decided to amplify a couple of black stories. And I was chief amongst them mm-hmm. um, and was paraded out at every opportunity. Right. And as such was paid what I thought handsomely. It wasn't enough. No, it wasn't. And so when I think about how exploitative it ended up being, the ways that it took me away from my schooling, um, the ways that I felt like I am, I am, I was a sophomore or a junior doing full catering orders for our, um, for the, for the dome. Right. And so I'm doing all of those things. I've got a commercial kitchen space. I'm being loved and also being forgotten. And so that is the thing, right. About being that publicly facing because everybody knows me. I'm Thundercakes Courtney mm-hmm. and I'm not even Courtney Courtney. I'm Courtney Futch. There is always, there was always like an, an adjective, I think, in, in, ahead of me. Yeah. And that was the thing that was stripping me from actually being seen. So it really only mattered that I was Thundercakes. And it really only maybe mattered that I was like that, that Futch girl. Mm-hmm. And the Courtney really didn't ever seem to make any, never mind anybody, even amongst my peers. You mentioned once on a phone call that we did like three months ago about being peerless. Yep. And it stuck with me for so long. Um, because I thought, wow, like how incredibly when people call us singular, I've stopped finding it cute. (laughs) It's, it's just fucking lonely. It's just lonely. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it's one thing I think because we live, because we live in that language, when we say it to each other, I think we know exactly what it means, but there is a weightedness in it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it took me years, I think, to even like find community, one of the ways that archival ended up kind of bringing me into one, a sense of self and then two, a sense of community mm. was a close friend's journey. In so in the aftermath of all of the thunder caking and, you know, the things and I'd been everywhere and I'd done everything and I ended up getting my master's and they paid for it. And I was like, thank you. 
You know what I mean? Besos. Um, I'd done all of this performative work and was so exhausted by the end of it that I could not bear to touch it anymore. Yep. My, you know, I've been asked to come back to do guest lectures. I've been asked to come back to do adjunct work. I've been asked to come back to, you know what I mean? Teach full classes on um, entrepreneurship. I've been asked, I've, I'm a case study. I'm a case study in the business school. It's really very cool work. You know what I mean? About once a year, I hear from a, from a little gaggle of like sophomores and juniors and, and they have a bunch of questions and sometimes I answer and other times I don't. And I appreciate all of those things because I felt like for me at the time, I think I did what I needed to do to do my best survival, but I never got to thriving because there was no community around me. I That's never got hard. there because there was no community. I wouldn't have known where to go to get it. Mm. I was in a relationship at the time that was, that put me slightly more into community um because he had a community established around him because of an organization that he was in and it felt good to proximally belong somewhere but those people were not mm -hmm, but then people were not mine you know what i mean those people those people were not mine Mm -hmm. and so when the relationship was over it surprised me when people chose me still (sighs) The thing that has been so surprising is the way that people have wrapped themselves around me when I thought I'd been forgotten. And so then I had to do the work of letting them be in deeper community with me so that I could let them know me and not just remember me. Oh, oh, wow. Wow. Ooh, I'm getting a little emotion. Oh, no. I didn't expect to be read like that. We have... Very similar expositions and then different rising actions, I'll tell you, because mm-hmm. I too was doing the most at my undergraduate institution. I got to my senior year and I basically had the world like they were like, what you want, you got it, especially if you publish your research, because my research was um, ethnographic research on the, the long term effects of Ebola on like culture, mm-hmm. grief and cultural memory. And to my knowledge, no one in the world has done that research and nobody could because I'm the only scholar that had institutional backing that also spoke the local language because I'm Sierra Leonean. Yeah, so people were willing to speak to me in a way that they weren't willing to speak to white professionals that had to conduct interviews in English. And Mm. I reached the end. So my first year was tough. I mean, I started this project at 19 um, and they did not, again, give me... It was, we are dying. And they said, here's a stage rather than, do you need support? Mm-hmm. So I did the first year. It was I, like, you know, pretty good. I interviewed healthcare professionals. It was a very grounding and humbling experience. Got Northwestern to pay for me to go home because um, it, it was the first time I had ever been back to Sierra Leone. Um, so then we went again wow. for the next year. And at that time I was interviewing Ebola survivors. Um, and they told me about the process of dying and then surviving and die- and dying among people that were dying. Um, and I shut off after that, um, because those people are my family. Um, I think of them every day. I would see them in my waking hours. I would see them when I slept. I chose not to do like an academic article instead. I chose to write uh, a senior thesis of poetry because I was a poet, obviously. Um, global health studies. Yes. Cause medical school, da, whatever, you know, accolades, honor blah 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 but like the Mm -hmm. the thesis of my life is poetry i'm gonna do what i need Mm -hmm. to do to be able to to be a poet in in comfort i wrote poetry about it it was incredible um i was studying i didn't know that northwestern was as good as it was in terms of uh 
um, writing, but it's one of the best writing programs in the country. I was being tutored by people that studied under Gwendolyn Brooks. I was being tutored by the college. And when I tell you I was just being a poet to be a poet, like I didn't care about clout. Yeah. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know. I understood that I was good and I understood nobody was seeing me, but like no one had ever seen me. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in any case, everyone was pushing me to publish. And then there was this bright, toothy voice in the back of my head. This voice, I, I have nicknamed her Auntie Day, which in um, Creole means like, Auntie Day means like, well, it's, it generally means is. But if you say like, Day, that means where are you? And if you say Ade, it means like, I'm here. So Auntie mm. Day would be like, Auntie's here. Auntie Day in the back of my head said, everyone will be able to see you. Are you certain that you want to be seen like this? Um, and that voice always comes out when I am flirting with the stage. Remember when I was 14, I heard this voice that said, everyone can see you. And it was just neutral. It was a statement of fact. Hey, everyone can see you. I said, okay. And I navigated the best that I could as a child. And here I was again about being invited up onto the world stage, right? Doing panels on promo. You catch me on the website, doing podcasts for, I was honored. And like, they chose, I think like 50, um, women to honor because Northwestern had their 100 year anniversary of admitting women into the school. Um, mm. Awards, accolades, research, da 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 It came time to go to graduate school, came time to publish my thesis. And I said, later. Like I just gave everybody an indefinite later. Uh, my mom was sick, my grandma was sick. I went home, I was about to drop out, in fact. And a couple oh, wow. teachers rallied around me to make sure that didn't happen and I graduated well. I matriculated into my graduate institution and I said, no more. Because I showed up to class, I, you know, I did the normal things, raised my hand, spoke. Everyone said, you're so insightful. My teachers pulled me aside. It's so helpful when you speak. I said, and what is it? Is it helpful for me when my classmates speak? No, it's not. Mm. So I started shutting up. Mm. I turned in shit late. Uh, I had family dying left and right of COVID. I said, y'all are going to get whatever you get. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I committed myself to the performance of underperformance i didn't do i said i'm gonna get into this in fact i was flirting with dropping out every sort of people people here and going whatever god i speak to said you have already essentially got this degree you can't drop out like you're gonna get it whether you you could crawl you could do you could sit on your ass and still get this degree i said Mm. say you swear (laughs) be for real (laughs) (laughs) but when i got into the club which was a public private space the club Mm. will never follow me outside if i don't want it to and definitely when I got in, it was clock in, clock out. Like, it was just a job. It didn't fall out and, and hang out with people from the club. Like, they knew me and they had me in deep sincerity. And it's where I found peers. It's where I found community. Because hustlers, hustlers are at the club. It taught me how to be comfortable with making thousands of dollars in a night. Which fundamentally changed my being. Um, it taught me how to take direction from people that had done it better than me. And we're going to do better than me. And we're going to be better than me for the first five, six, seven years that I'm on the game. Because I was working with people that had worked at that club 17 years, 18 years. Like, you have to, wow. I'm so serious at how good you have to be at dancing to be able to be a career dancer. And I was. And the institutional knowledge that you have to have. No, like. Yeah. Some of the smartest, sharpest entrepreneurs I've ever met were mm. my locker mates. And they would put me on game because they liked me and they could see that I was going to take them seriously. And I wasn't um, a new girl from TikTok, I'll say. Uh, my mm-hmm. journey into the club was I have $50 in my bank account and I just spent my last life savings, a few, you know, $3,500 on a whip to get myself to and from the club. So this has to work. Like I literally bet mm-hmm. my rent money on being able to make it. And I did. 
Mm. Um, but that was the place where I got reacquainted with performance that was for me. Because honestly, I'm pretty enough that I really don't need to dance. Like, I didn't need to dance. Period. You know, I, I just, I would like to say that this is absolutely true. <laughs> you know what I mean? If I had, if I had the monies right now, like in current, it'd be yours. <laughs> I just, I'm saying this, you know what I mean? Just so that the people at home can know. I didn't, I really did not need to do shit. However, I shook my ass anyways, cause I liked it. And mm-hmm. also, um, there was a, a gorgeous stage and it had like a 30 foot pole. And I had mm. never experienced jealousy before. I'm, what do I got to be jealous? What do I got to... <laughs> but um, watching some of my coworkers go Defy Gravity was like, I need to be able to do that. Like, it was like a siren's call. And I had no desire to go take lessons. I didn't have desire to go, like, on YouTube. I was like, one day it will just come to me. And it did. It was that voice, Auntie Day, in the back of my head, mm. like, you love the stage. You look so good up here. I was like, I mm. do love this stage. And I was finally old enough to, to recognize um, what love for this stage looks like and not just compulsion, not just I'm supposed to be here, not just I'm good at this and not just other people like it when I do this because men don't care either way where you can pole dance or not. Honestly, mm. like it's not, a, it's not a flex for them. You're not going to get any more or less money. It's a flex for you. Ooh. It was the first time that I was performing for me. And I was like, this is, I, I, I have always wanted this. I would say if I hadn't grown up poor, I would have been a ballerina. I never would have become a stripper. Mm. If I had, if we had had the money and I had had the money to stay in ballet, I would have gone to Howard. I would have danced for Beyonce. I'm going to tell you. But, you know, mm. we all get, we, we, you get it how you live it. So it was, um, it was the first time that I had realized how much growing up semi in public changed me. And how I need to reconcile with that. Because whether I like it or not, I have a long-standing relationship with the stage that I can't deny anymore. Mm -hmm. And at that point in time, there was so much alcohol around me. Um, And I come from a family of alcoholics. Alcohol is part of the job. I used to have a a decent and healthy relationship with alcohol and then became a stripper. And I had to drink champagne for money. Um, And I was not doing well. Like I was in my second, what I thought was my final year uh, at graduate school I hated it Mm -hmm. Um, I was still doing my best to hide my brilliance which was like a a death to self in some ways like um, underperforming was good for protection but was bad for like my need to be brilliant like it was like Mm. I was watching myself catch fire and Mm. I needed an outlet um, and the club was amazing for performance but it was still anonymous that was the point in time in which I picked up TikTok. I didn't realize that that was the timing in your journey. Okay. It Looking back, it wasn't an accident. It felt like an accident then. It felt very, very, very random then. Just like mm-hmm. I had never had a desire to speak to the public before. What I had a desire to do when I was younger was to do what I was supposed to do. Um, mm-hmm. And because so much of uh, my my speaking was spiritually and religiously charged, there was some element of choice in that that I did not have. Like, I was more of a vessel than I was an artist at that point in time. Mm-hmm. I had never had a desire to address the masses before, even for small things. Like, I did not have social media at all. I did not do I, At the time, I had an Instagram that one of my friends ran so that people would stop forgetting to invite me to events. But I didn't... Like, I was not invested in that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So thinking about how much I was unconsciously, subconsciously, secretly with my left hand calling the stage forth and saying, please come find me in a way that I can, Mm -hmm. that I can be, maybe we can find some peace together by picking up 
TikTok and making like a cute little video that immediately went viral. My first TikTok ever gets mm -hmm. 60,000 likes on its like first go around. And then bumps up the mm. more viral because I it was wasn't just that immediately viral and then I did some silly things one million views and two million views back to back like two weeks later, and then it was it. What? Mm -hmm. That's how that happened. Can we hold on? Can we just like take a take a like a quick second, All right? Gosh, okay, okay. The the mm, the parallel of our journeys is such an interesting one. One we're going to have to talk about this this damn TikTok algorithm, right? And how it pushes out what you feel like is your most innocuous, right? The sort of <laughs> sort of piece of content. I'm just talking. Exactly. All of a sudden, three hundred thousand. You're just saying things. Exactly. And so, like, and it's so funny. My the decision to move from private to public, the close friends journey in which I'd been kind of chronic, chronicling, yeah, chronicling um, my dating life for the last year. And it, at that point, it had been almost exactly a year of court and Courtney hashtag court and Courtney, which ah. now is not holding, you know, now it's holding court. It's different. <laughs> anyway, um, I have, I was operating in like community and still that felt like more anonymity. Right. And so occasionally I would kind of let people in, they'd see a little bit, maybe they know that I was somewhere on a date with somebody, some, somebody's raggedy ass son. Mm. And then there was this decision to actually share where my head was at with dating. Yep. And that was my first viral video. And it was my like second or third video ever. I, before that, I was just saying random things and, you know, responding to stuff and whatever. And so for that to be the one that shifted um, was a conversation around like soft love and like the choice to be loved softly mm -hmm. um, and putting language to that for the very first time, a poem where it wasn't even a poem really, but like a little, a, a small little missive that I'd written about just like being mishandled and the desire to be handled well. Right. Had been living in my phone's notes for some months at the time that I decided to share it. And it was so random. I just kind of figured out, I think, the way the TikTok worked. Where it's like, oh, okay, cool. Like, you can just overlay your text on this thing of you doing something else. And you know what I mean? And, and whatever. And so I was like, yeah, let's just try it out. And I went to sleep that night. and woke up the next morning. And I was at my half a millionth view. And was like, what the hell is going on? And the confusion that I felt from... Those were thoughts that might have maybe gotten shared in, in, in the close friends community, which is like 40 people. Mm -hmm. I haven't added anybody new to it, really, it's mm -hmm. even as my community space has grown. Um, and then so the shift from anonymity to now like deep public perception where everybody's like, oh, my God, I love this. I'm I'm going to be saying this prayer tonight. And I'm like, did I just give you language? What? And I know that I've been doing that. But I didn't realize the impact that it could potentially have and start to like and to help people kind of brainstorm and think through the ways that they could be more intentional about language actually showing up in their like daily real sort of aspirational life. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I think like the decision to go from anonymous, so to speak, um, or in smaller, more secluded sort of siloed off spaces to now making a decision to share. And the immediate affirmation that comes with that was my decision to be like okay cool like the stage is actually home i think for the both of us yeah there's no getting around it there's no getting around it so then in terms of archival and in terms of that being an outpouring of self-love for the both of us um when we were in private and when we weren't anonymous when we did have anonymous spaces that we found precious to us that we still do right keeping yourself for yourself 
is an art in and of itself and it's love that deserves to stand on its own and I don't need to invite anybody else into that me and myself have secret places we know how to be in community each other now now I'm figuring out what is self-love for the part of me that exists in public and how do I show myself love while other people watch me mm. I think that's also archival work for me the archive that exists for the public where if you want to go look at what I'm doing and read all my things and binge all of my things you will get to know me mm -hmm. committing to that intimacy is important like I always say I'm an amalgamation of the people that love me the amalgamation of the people that build me and I was impartial built by the public eye there's no getting around that as much as I thought I could hide from it, all I did was delay the inevitable, really truly. Mm -hmm. So how do I love myself in public when people can see me, knowing that that is intensely intimate, sensual, vulnerable? I feel like mm. Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop. Mm. How do I t protect myself from like the Davids of the world? Okay. Oh gosh. Okay. I have so many thoughts. The thought, this is so interesting. Like this, I, I just did my final podcast episode of the season oh. and at the end of it, um, which feels insane and love and better actually, to I me. Think, you know what I mean? Yeah. Really get in there and especially watch it on YouTube. Thank you so much. <laughs> I need the watch hours. Um, but, but, um, one of the things I think that's really been coming up for me was the way that this relationship in particular has contributed to a profound lack of silence in my life. And one, because the work of being in partnership with someone, I feel like when done intentionally and lovingly and openly and transparently requires so much more conversation. Mm -hmm. um, the conversations that we're having are future forward. They are past facing. They are present, you know, currently. And we're trying to figure out how to deepen that too. And we're really doing the work of building a life. Now, something that I feel like is very important, and I'd, I'd said this before too, is that I felt like what had been happening with me was that I always met men in what I call the flash. I don't really know how to describe the flash, but it'll be like I am at the peak of whatever is happening in a particular silo, and I will meet somebody in that. And what they're seeing in the aftermath of that and what they're experiencing in the early stages of it is like the the oxytocin like release of watching me be so successful. It's addictive and um, pedestal pudding. Yeah. Right. That's yep. really the official language. Y'all got to tell me twice. Yes. <laughs> it's very easy to put me on a pedestal when every day it looks like I'm climbing the ladder to stand up there myself. It is very easy to put me up there. And um, I have been actively trying to deconstruct a pedestal, one in my dating space, and then two, just in my personal life where people don't know me, they just see me. Mm -hmm. And um, letting myself be known is part of letting myself be seen now, and I do understand that. So the thing that's really been coming up has been making space for silence mm. in the middle of all of this. So mm -hmm. with, with my with my partner now, I didn't meet him in the flash. 
And this is the first time that that's ever happened. Mm -hmm. So like cool things are happening, but also weird things are happening. Work, I'm, I'm leaving, you know what I mean, the corporate space or the startup corporate space or the adjacency to it all after a career that's 10 years long, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I've been doing this work. I have made it part of my identity. I've made it part of my personhood. I attach myself so deeply to the causes of other people's aspirations in capitalism. I have done all of these things and now I am untethering myself from that. So he's meeting me in an unflash. And I am so excited about that because now it's not reliant upon my performance. It's not reliant upon my compliance with any other institution. It's just me getting to figure it out and being loved for what I figure. And so because all of that requires so much talking through, mm -hmm. right? And even when it doesn't require talking through, like not that it's become a requirement in the relationship, but it's just something we're excited to parse through. What it's created is a lot of other excitement for other people, people who are close to me, people who have been around for the two and a half years that I was trudging, my love, trudging through these raggedy ass dating streets while I was getting it wrong, while I was fucking it up, while other people were fucking me over, while all of these things were happening, while I was fucking myself over too. Let me be very clear about the accountability piece here. And so there are people who have questions and I get that and I love them, but they were creating a lack of silence in my life and it was disillusioning. Mm. Everybody who needs an update, everybody who wants a thing, everybody who needs a deliverable in order to feel comfortable with the ways that I've changed and my access might change mm. for them. The ways mm. that they've been able to access me when I was my most useful for them. When I'm the person who you call when you need to commiserate about some raggedy nigga. When I'm the person who, you know what I mean? Like oh, the yeah. ways that all of that has shifted for folks. I am not available for that right now. And it is driving them crazy. I can't even begin to tell you the shifts I've seen in like my personal space as a result of, of this. I'm pointing to the other room, by the way, he's here, but like, it's, it's such a funny thing seeing the people who I loved, love me most when I had my sadness to split with them. Fuck y'all. And I do mean that in a very full and deep sort of way. You know what I mean? That's really the tea. The whole fuck. Not um, even in part. That I mean, first of all, that's very real. Most definitely mm -hmm. what I said about, I don't know if I said this on or off camera, but when people only love you because you are useful to them and mm -hmm. then you become useful to yourself and then their, mm -hmm. th their terms and conditions of that love changes. That's exactly. Mm -hmm. And it's sad because you're happy. Like, why are you sad that yeah. I'm happy? More yeah. than that, what I'm hearing is not only are you at a point in time where your personal is changing what with like um the the stewarding the rooting the blooming the nectar mm -hmm. of a new relationship that same mm -hmm. thing is happening with your audience yes yes because you're at a point in time where like you're entering into the next thing the next thing is like is is investing in your personal brand it's investing mm -hmm. in your podcast i'm sort of there as well like oh sh i'm looking around like people take me seriously i gotta take myself seriously and not mm -hmm. even just seriously, um, long term. Mm. Like I'm making a commitment to myself. Isn't, why is nobody talking about the long term? I, you know what I, you know what I think it is. I think that people are not talking about the long term um, goals of building a personal brand because it's still so new. It is. It's still so new. Well, like. It's like who am I going to become, and then where, where, where does that fit? 
And I think that we have both done the work of being specific and exacting. I called, I called her exacting at the, at the beginning of this. Um, and I feel like it, and I mean that so lovingly because I think that people really do attempt to divorce and, and you've said this much better than I think I could. Um, but people have attempted to divorce benevolence from, um, the ability to calculate, Mm -hmm. right. Um, and from the ability to make very smart decisions about themselves and about a brand or about marketing and about all of these other things. And I think even further than that, the way that they really try to disarm folks who are also tapped into their sensuality, um, as though you cannot be both a sexual being and brilliant. Yep. Is so deeply funny to me when I feel like the most sensual and sexual people I know do the work of intellect, who do the work of, of being in smart spaces, of being strong readers, of being great writers, of letting their imaginations flow. Um, and I think that part of being able to do that is just about having the knowledge about what the hell else is going on in the world so that you can feel those things and then move your body through them. Mm. And I think people try to like separate those things from each other and that's not fair. Um, and it doesn't really leave a whole lot of room for us to be like deeply human. So then when we talk about branding in a long-term sort of sense, I don't think that we've seen anybody do yet. I haven't, right? I'm, I'm thinking about there are folks who are more mature who are hitting their stride now, mm-hmm. but we haven't seen a 40 year personal brand. No. Yet. Yeah. In a it's real still sort of way. So Oprah. Oh, I, yeah. I mean, yeah. In terms of it, that's still not direct to consumer though, because social media is mm-hmm. still so new. So when it is mm-hmm. me doing the marketing for myself and giving it directly to you, the person that I'm talking to, it's never been this intimate. It's never been this authentic and it's never been longer than 10, 15 years. I think mm-hmm. people, including me, have a hard time thinking about what this looks like long term is because we're used to people being fads. Like people have always tried to make themselves or attach themselves to a trend. It's the Mm -hmm. idea that I'm going to be here and gone. And honestly, that's how I thought about it. When I watched myself blow up, I kept waiting for there to be some sort of like plateau. I kept waiting for my 15 Mm -hmm. minutes of fame to be over and then things would be normal again. And then I could go back. First of all, I'm never going back. Like I can't if even if I wanted to, but then owning about myself that I love the stage and I don't actually want to go back to what it was before where I was hiding from everybody all the time, hiding from myself because I was hiding from other people. Then more Mm -hmm. than that, it is difficult to figure out how to like love yourself in authenticity with people watching um, while you also have to maintain a private life and then even more than that nobody tells you that you really do need to know where you're going with all of this that you do Mm. have to be calculated that you do have to have a plan that you do need to know what exactly it is you want from all of these eyes otherwise the public will tell you what to do and then you're going to end up like scandal just a mess Mm. because they let twitter dictate their plot points you need to know where you're going with this you are the showrunner Mm -hmm. of your own life right Mm -hmm. it can be a lot to negotiate the love of masses where it is sincere it is also dehumanizing where like Mm -hmm. and no matter how much i try to scream out my humanity you know who does this a lot beyonce do we think of that lady as a human no 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 we don't the best thing that we can be is honest with ourselves and that the reason Mm -hmm. she has lyrics like she's a god she's a hero is because that's what we did to her regardless of whether she wanted that or not and she was very explicit in telling us that that is not what she set out for mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. knowing what's going to happen to me here on the other side while people watch i just have to be honest in self-inventory mm-hmm. um, and honest with what i can give people and honest with what i can't yeah yeah 
I, I think my question for you, I'm wondering if you've ever felt this way, right? Because I think that the beautiful thing about archival or docu you know, documentarianism um, is that those things can live as deeply internally as, as we'd like. But then where do you feel like the, because I think for me, it's like there are things that I feel compelled to share. Like I have, I'm learning a compulsion to say the quiet parts out loud. Like I find the quietest of the things and then I, I pull them apart. And um, have you ever seen Focaccia? Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, so the making of Focaccia is like very interesting. But like when you when you stretch it apart and kind of really hold it up to the light, there are these little window panes that are formed like from the from the forming of the gluten. And I think it's really interesting. And lately I've been feeling very much like focaccia i feel Ooh. like the the like the the little panes of like gluten light for me um <laughs> are becoming like really deeply visible to people and so i've decided that i need time to get back to the silence so that i can sit in the feelings so that i can do the thinking about the feelings and just the feeling of the feeling and the thinking about the thinking and then i can write mm. and only when i do that can i share mm -hmm. and so i decided that silence but not hiding. And I'm trying to figure out how to hide and then keep things quiet. I'm trying to figure out how to be out there and also keep things quiet. And I just, I just hard. don't know what it's that looks hard. like. How are you, do you feel like you've gotten to a place where you were able to reconcile what you keep for yourself, right? Because you are one, a remarkable writer. Thank you. The, uh, gosh, like the way you weave words together. I've, I've truly never seen anything like it. And so what would you say that there's even a percentage of that that you keep for yourself that just makes you feel sane when like 10% of it is for you? Do you feel like you are at one with yourself? Do you still feel like you're in community with yourself? Because I am still struggling to figure out that balance of what is for everybody else. And then what gets to be for just double E Courtney. Mm. This is where I out myself as an intensely selfish person. Because uh, you're going to... I keep about 95% of the things that I write. No one ever sees. And I mean nobody. Wow. Nobody. So that tells you how much it is that I write. Because I'm still putting out something a week. Yeah. Um, but I've also been writing creatively for 10 years. And the mm. majority no one will ever see. The majority, like, first of all, uh, I have instituted the no first drafts policy. Nobody ever sees first draft. Never. Hmm. Not for me. Because the first draft is when I am the most raw and when I am the most honest. And that is a secret place. Like, I can't. It will show you exactly. You'll see exactly the mechanisms of my mind on paper. Hmm. And that's too much to give somebody. Um, that did not always used to be the case. I used to be first draft only, in fact, especially when I was real deep in that spoken word artist bag. Like it was like write the poem, say the poem immediately because the mm -hmm. the the goodness of that of it was that it was like fresh and raw and authentic and first draft. That was good for a childhood me that didn't have a lot to protect, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. That was good for a childhood me because I was a walking first draft. Um, now that I have Ooh. a lot more to protect, now there's a lot more that I can't say. Don't nobody get a first draft. Never. Um, and then the second thing is that I save my best work for myself. When I write something that I feel like would fundamentally change me if I read it, I don't share it. I know that that's really backwards. But it's like, you know how you don't wear your best sneaks to the party? 
you're not gonna mm-hmm. you're not about to wear your best Jordans to the party. You're gonna wear your second best because you're not gonna you're crease them. Because you're not gonna crease them sneakers. Exactly. Once I mm-hmm. put it out in the world, it doesn't belong to me anymore. It belongs to whoever needs it, and mm-hmm. I need to be okay with that. So there are some pieces of writing that I am not okay with watching get changed by the hands that hold them. Um, which means that I save all of my best work, the work that the was best is subjective. This is the work that I find to be the most, the most. It's for me. Mm-hmm. The moment that it goes out, it's not mine anymore. So mm. I have recognized that I am a selfish person. And instead of trying to change it about myself, I give myself what it is that I need. I assume that my selfishness is not immoral. I assume it's not sinful. I assume it's not out to get me. I assume that my selfishness is me saying I need to be fed first and I give myself my first fruits always. I make sure that I eat before I share. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then that's hmm. in terms of keeping my own secrets, which I think has been the hardest part because I am not, I'm naturally a good secret keeper for other people, but like other people's secrets, I think overwhelmed me so much that I didn't have any room for my own. So not talking mm. about the things that I'm, you know, like, so there are some parts of existing in public is in that you have to work on things that you're really excited about that you can't breathe a word of yet. And that might go on for months. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes years. There are things that I have to let hatch. So the other thing is that I view the art that I put out into the world or the work in general, art, organizing, targeting, raising, whatnot. I view those things as things that are alive outside of me. Because mm-hmm. the stuff that I'm most important, uh, the stuff that I find most important will likely happen in some way or some fashion, even if I personally am not the steward for it. So if mm-hmm. I am going to be the steward of something, if I am going to help something make its way in the world, I act like it's alive. Like I act like it's a real thing. You can't rush a baby. You can't rush mm-hmm. a chick from hatching out an egg. Um, and yeah. no matter how much I talk about it, the more eyes are on at, like a pregnancy, for example, there's a reason that people don't announce shit until there's Mm -hmm. until a certain point in time because you Mm -hmm. need to give yourself time to germinate so anything Mm -hmm. that is in like the germination phase anything that isn't in the like until we're ready to market nothing i have to Mm. because it's not just me it's not just my secrets um whatever life that this thing is about to live once i send it off and it toddles into the world deserves its best chance so instead of viewing it in spaces of ownership i am so excited and so i want to share now I view it in space of I'm in community with my ideas. I'm in community with the people that I work them on. And I can you can't rush community. I mm, hold on. Archival. Y'all can't hear it, but I'm but I'm seriously scribbling. <laughs> archival okay, is because I think you gotta put it like, you know, archival is when you put out the the baby announcement. And I'm dedicated mm-hmm. to the work of archival with you all. I want us to all have the post that we put on our fridge of six pounds, three ounces, this long, this wide at this time. Um, but it would be ludicrous of me to send that out before the baby's born. Right. Yeah. And it's like this many, what you said about the close friends journey. Yeah. It's this many mm-hmm. people that get to know about what I'm working on. Even in my personal life, I don't be talking about what happens online. My friends call me and be like, I don't know. Yeah, no, you didn't know. <laughs> You know what? Can we? Okay. I had a thought the other day and I really like this thought. One, I have several thoughts about what you just said, but the brain, you know what I mean? I have the ADHD. Uh, One, some things, even when they are for the public, cannot be for the people in your private space. Yep. 
And I have been learning that one just by way of, it's so interesting. Like I, I don't think I ever really saw myself as somebody who felt so infinitely moved by a partnership that I am so deeply protective of it. So this isn't really about the partnership because what it is, is actually about, I think what I was able to identify as a larger series of, of patterns mm -hmm. um, around people who, even though I held them so close to me, I am learning now that there has to be a difference between what I share with the public and then what gets shared in private and the ways that I've even had to put guardrails around what intimacy looks like for people who are in community with me. And now community too is changing. So my idea had been like, okay, cool. I've got these folks who are like really close to me and we've lived life together. I've got family members. We've grown up together. We're three weeks apart. We've been together our entire lives. We really should be like sisters, but maybe we're not right now. And maybe it's because... You were not able to hold private love for me in this moment. And I'm going to let it be okay that the public might be more excited for this thing that I have going on or the newness of the development that's happening around me because they're not seeing me with the same sort of private thoughts that you've had, the maybe private resentment that you've had, the private feelings through the private lens. I am a person that they experience briefly, but I have been fundamental in your life. Those are two different things and I'm having to let it be okay that there is a difference and it's emerging and it's emerging at such a rapid clip that it almost feels very scary, but I'm, I'm having to really just like sit in that mm. and let it be all right. Mm -hmm. If the way that you have to love me is not on the floor seats, but in the bleachers, I'm going to let it be okay. Like, I think that's really where all of that growing comes in at because really what I'm in community with to your, to use your beautiful, beautiful language. I love the way, by the way, that you, you really do like personify and liven, um, you know, your language, um, the use of seedlings and, and germination, right. And, and there really is a tending to, that is the difference in the way that you use your word. I've been trying to pinpoint this for months now. This has been driving me crazy because language usually comes to me quite easily. And I've been finding that when I think about you, I've actually been struggling a little bit more. But there is a nurturing and nourishment in the way that you describe yourself that makes this this language right the garden space the the germination the hatching the seedlings the the watering of you it makes you make so much more sense when i realize that the that the threading there pun intended <laughs> is one of nurturing and nourishment i'm from the it mountains it makes so much more sense i'm from the mountains yep i learned how language moved like nature taught me a lot about english mm. Oh, I'm writing that down. Have, Have you, you read said that, that before? I don't think so, but I'm realizing that I'm le I learned English in like the woods of Colorado. I learned English primarily from reading the Bible and being and, and uh, describing the things around me. So it really makes a lot of sense that I think of everything as a growing thing when you consider like where I grew up and where I. I began to start thinking of self it was in the middle of the woods and the mountains everything for me is a growing thing i need to sit in that for a moment look i actually just i need to i'm sitting mm. i love you so much i love you too 
Mm. I've been campaigning okay. as a highfalutin city girl, but oh no. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. What an absolutely incredible little throughway there. Like I, I did not know that that was the piece that I felt like I was missing about why your words sit with me the way that they do. But it's because they are growing words. Mm. Growing words is something I'm going to write down. Shut up about our, we both notebooks out. You know what I mean? I've got a full page here, my love. <laughs> mm. I have one last question for you on this podcast called Threadings. Okay. So what are the things that keep and collect you? Oh, gosh. Um, I think that I am a person who is one. This this language is actually very new to me, but you've heard me say it before, I think at the beginning of this episode, which is that I have let it be okay that I am not interested so much in arrival as returning. Ooh. I feel like living in the nostalgia of a young Courtney who was fearless and infinitely more fun and my imagination had the space to run wild and I was deeply invested in play and um, enjoyed painting before I knew that there was no money in it, so to speak, and enjoyed cooking before I knew there was no money in it and enjoyed nurturing before I realized it might be exploited. I miss her. Mm. She was so smart and brilliant and perceptive and sweet and had not nearly as much language, but had the ability to sit with someone and make it feel like I'd said the words. And I miss her. The thing that is keeping and collecting me these days is the desire to get back to baby Courtney. I think she was so much fun. I think she was cool as hell. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really bound by this desire to return. You know what I realized? I'm going to ruin my next podcast episode for you, which by the time this comes out, it will have been out, but you haven't heard it yet. Okay. The 14 year old that had just picked up journaling planted all these sunflowers that surprised me today. The baby Courtney that you miss called you forth, had you in mind. Like, it's interesting that she's the thing that's keeping you when she's also the thing that brought you here. well you know what I mean <laughs> ah, oh gosh mm. I'm really grateful to have grown up I didn't realize how much work little me did just in case we survived all this and it's good to also meet people that find their most precious thing in the versions of themselves that brought them here. I'm very grateful for you, Courtney. Oh, God. Mm. I am so grateful for you, too. Can you believe the internet brought us together? No, I can't.
Oh, it's so deeply insane. You sharpened my ideas in a way I thought I would have to go back through the trenches to get to. Same. So rare. Yeah. Like, it's very rare that I trust people with the thoughts of my mind. But to know that I'm going, not only just to loan them out like a library book, but that they're going to be better when I receive them. Mm-hmm. So rare. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I won't say your age here, but I forget all the time that you are... Oh, I'm vocal about like my age. Four... Yeah, I'm oh, 24. Okay. I've... Yeah, so I forget all the time that you are four years younger than me, right? Um, and I think that the one there's I used to think I, I don't know I, I have complicated feelings about the word mature I really you know what I mean I feel like the way that people have said it they use it kind of as a compliment but it's also like I don't have to check in on you so much and your care requirements aren't as high because you're mature and you've got this and so you'll figure it out and so I really want to be careful when I'm using that language to describe you but mature would mature is too small you feel tethered to this planet in a way that I know you'd been here a couple times before. And it's so interesting to me to watch you knowing that they, like you know what you're missing in ways that other people, I think, quite frankly, never get language to describe. We just kind of move through the universe and we collect our little puzzle pieces. And I think that it's been great, right? You, you figure out the thing. You're like, OK, cool. But you know how many pieces are supposed to be there. You know that it is a, a 350 piece puzzle. And, you know, even even if it's not always all the time that like, you know, how it's supposed to look, you know where your pieces kind of live. And then you know what questions to ask to go and figure out what the hell those other pieces are. And I think that that is such a unique skill set. Um, I am incredibly aware of the awareness that is required to tell people what you don't know so that they can help you get it. Um, and I think it's gracious and I also think that it's brave and I want to pour into that because I think that quite frankly in a universe where, and I, I'm just learning myself to like ask more questions and feel less pressure to have answers. Mm. Like I'm, I'm just getting there where mm. it's like, I, I've been lauded for my answering for so many years that I felt shamed for having questions. Ooh, wow. And I love that you ask them. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Courtney, mm. thank you so much for being here with me. Oh. Ismatu, there's no place I'd rather be in the world right now. Oh. <laughs> I love you so much. I love, I love you, you, I love you, I love you. Oh. Oh. I will end this the way I end all of these, which is that I hope that the work of your day passes through your hands with ease. And then I'll see you next time. This is not the first, this is not the last time you'll be here. Promise period i have to have you on the pod oh yes and if you are listening make sure to tune in to with love and butter podcast watch it on youtube you're always you. pretty you should watch it on youtube <laughs> tbh you know what i mean I'm, I'm quite a cutie when i'm not looking like i look right now oh hush <laughs> you're so cute you should see the glasses eating me up mm, nom 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 <laughs> <laughs> i'll talk to you later bye Courtney. all right bye There it is, folks. Thank you so much for turning in. Threadings is going on a one-week break just to give myself a little bit of reading room before we get into the next bit of it. We're going to be reading Zora Neale Hurston in the next week, so stay happy, tuned, ready, freddy, I don't know. <laughs> be ready for that. In the meantime, 
As always, I hope the work of your day passes through your hands with ease. Until next time. Thank you.